I want to take you to 1 Kings 12. 1 Kings chapter 12 it is, it has become, I should say, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible uh, for one specific phrase. Now, when you think of favorite chapters in the Bible, 1 Kings 12 is probably not the most likely answer. It hasn't received its due attention, I would say. And so this morning, I kind of want to do that bring some attention to this really fascinating story and the way in which our whole perspective on it changes with just a single phrase. Actually, one phrase can change the entire outlook of what happens in this particular setting. So to get our bearings on about what's to transpire in the first 20-odd verses that we're going to look at this morning, we have to just kind of see what's happening and kind of get you into the text um, I'm going through a sermon series on this book, First Kings, and has been so profound to watch as history marches forward. So too does God's providence be revealed on almost every turn. And I think this chapter is one which uh, shows us that quite clearly. As chapter 12 begins, King Solomon has died. He has passed off the scene uh, uh, in just the previous couple verses. But uh, it would say that his sort of uh, his legacy looms very large in not just this chapter, but in the chapters to come. His son Rehoboam is about to take the throne. And we find uh, him and a bunch of elders in verse 1 of chapter 12 uh, about to anoint him king. Notice it says, And Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. They've assembled there to anoint him as the new official monarch of Israel. Keep in mind the united Israel. Now it's interesting to note that this coronation doesn't happen in the holy city. Did you notice that? They're in Shechem, not Jerusalem, where they're making him the new king of Israel. Shechem, you might know, is a city that holds a lot of historical significance for the people of of Israel. Abraham has some connections there, as does Jacob. Joseph's tomb is uh, in Shechem, and also Joshua, the heir apparent to Moses, reaffirmed the covenant here in this city. Uh, So it holds a lot of historical weight for the people of Israel, but also it, it represented, I would say, a setting a site of neutrality between all of the tribes of Israel. As you know, Israel was made up of about 12 districts or 12 tribes, and they weren't always happily married, we could say, and they had no, none too few skirmishes between them. And here, the setting is chosen precisely because relations between the tribes are a little bit tense right now. And notice that is coming to bear in verse 2. Notice uh, they're, not, they're anointing Rehoboam in Shechem. And it says in verse 2, And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was in, yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that he sent him and called him. So, uh, again, getting our bearings, Jeroboam here is a former member of King Solomon's court. You can read about him at the end of chapter 11, about verse 26 through the end of the chapter. He was a high-ranking official. Uh, working for King Solomon uh, during the ages when Solomon was doing massive construction projects. And then in the middle of that, he receives a, a visit from a prophet named Ahijah. And Ahijah announces that he is going to be ruler over Israel. You can read of that prophecy in verses 26 through about 39 of chapter 11. And of course, Solomon doesn't like that at all. And so he threatens Jeroboam's life. Look at verse 40 of chapter 11. It says, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. 
this our same guy. And Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt and Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So see, just getting our bearers here, you have Rehoboam, the heir apparent, Solomon's son. You have Jeroboam, a former member of King Solomon's court, who has been taking refuge in Egypt. And now a new king is being crowned, Rehoboam. And Jeroboam is now coming back to the land where he used to live and work. And he is now being called upon to be sort of the spokesperson, if you will, for the other tribes of Israel. Notice verse 3, they sent him and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore, make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. Again, you have this sort of tense relationships being sort of worked through as a new regime is starting. He's calling essentially for some labor reform under this new monarch. Hey, be nicer to us. Work us a little bit lighter. Solomon had developed a reputation for being a very ruthless enforcer, a very hard taskmaster. But even something more, uh, I would say, deeper that's going on, if you read chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Kings, you don't have to, uh, unless you really want to, um, but what, <laughs> at least right now, um, what happens is it, it details how Solomon is reorganizing the districts. Again, it's, it's not very exciting reading chapters 4 and 5. Uh, but in chapter 4, he, he it talks about this guy is going to rule over this place, and this guy is going to rule over that place. And essentially what it is showing you is that Solomon is taking upon himself to reorganize all of the tribes of Israel. And then he then takes pe- workers out of each of those districts to work on the big project he was working on, which was, of course, the building and the construction of the temple. But it's fascinating to note that he doesn't conscript any laborers out of one tribe, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of the holy palace, if you will, the place where he resided. So there was already this sense of favoritism being uh, just brooding over the people of Israel. And now you have uh, some people that don't like being worked the way they're being worked. And you have Solomon passing off the scene and everyone breathing a sigh of relief because that guy who was always partying and making everyone work when he didn't want to work is now no longer here. So you can see that Jeroboam is taking this opportunity opportunity uh, for what it is. Let's see if we can change our circumstances as sort of the, the ugly ducklings, if you will, of the Israelite tribes. Let's change our work situation. So uh, Rehoboam, new guy, new king, you're on our turf, you're in Shechem. Hey, let's uh, concede to some lighter enforcements on us. Rehoboam hears this sort of complaint In verse 4 and then in verse 5, and he said to them, depart yet for three days and then come again to me. And the people departed. So give me three days to think about what you've just requested. Give me some time to uh, sort of soak in uh, uh, these requests and how we're going to manage it and all this kind of stuff. And he then goes, Rehoboam does, he goes to two separate groups of counselors. Notice verse 6, and King Rehoboam consulted with the old men. That stood before Solomon, his father, while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people, these old men, 
who had previously uh, offered guidance to his daddy, Solomon. By the way, uh, it's interesting to note that the historian here in 1 Kings uh, adds that detail. That these were the same group of counselors and advisors that advised his dad. And yet, if you read through the annals and the catalogs of Solomon's reigns, you will never find a single moment where he is being consulted or he's consulting with other wise men. Really interesting to me because Solomon, of course, was very prideful in his wisdom. But that's beside the point. Um, their advice seems really sound. He goes to them, how, do you, how should I answer these people who are asking this request of me? Verse 7, and they, the old men, spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. Servant leadership, essentially. You will model what you want to get out of your people. Humble yourself and they will obey you. They will listen to you. They will be loyal to you. And they will allow you to achieve all that you want to achieve. But I think, and perhaps this is me reading into the text, but I think Rehoboam's mind was already made up before he ever went to these older guys for wisdom. Because you notice, notice verse 6. Where it says, how do ye advise? How do you guys say I should answer this question? And then notice verse 8. But he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, notice, notice how he asked them this question. What counsel give ye that we may answer this people? Who have spoken to me, saying, make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. Notice how he changes sort of his question, and you can almost see where his true allegiances lie. How do you say we, I should answer, versus how, do, how should we respond? He's sort of playing his hand. He, he, he is opting here to sort of renege on all of the advice of his daddy's advisors, and he instead opts to listen to his peers. To his group of friends perhaps he grew up with. They went to Sunday school together. They were, in, they were in kindergarten together. These are guys he's been around for a really long time. How do we answer this request? And notice what they tell him to do. Verse 10. And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him saying. Thus shalt thou speak unto this people. That spake unto thee saying. Thy father made our yoke heavy. But make it thou lighter unto us. Thus Shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now whereas my father did lay you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Not very nice words. These younger guys who likely thought they knew everything advise Rehoboam, Don't make any concessions. Don't, don't give a lick to these people. In fact, you need to double down on intimidation. If you really want these people to follow you, if you really want these people to trust you and trust your leadership, you need to force them into doing what you want them to do. So you need to uh, not concede and not give in to them at all. This is their counsel <laughs> to this newly minted king. They say that your authority... As the king of Israel, the king of God's people of promise is best demonstrated by increasing the people's burdens rather than lessening it. And of course this plays right into human ego. 
Rehoboam, I'm sure, likes these words. Yes, of course. I want to be uh, seen as the dominant one, the, the, the mighty one, the, the king and the, the captain over all these people. And so he leads Israel right into tyranny. Notice verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam uh, the third day. So it's, it's three days later. And the king appointed, uh, appointed saying, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly. And forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him. And spake to them after after the counsel of the young men saying, My father made your yoke heavy and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people. For the cause was from the Lord that he might perform his saying which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nabat. So... You have this fascinating scene. This request was made to the new king. Hey, lighten our load. Let us sort of have an easier way about working and we will serve you. We will honor you. We will follow you. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to force my hand upon you. I'm going to press upon you, not with whips, but as he says, there were scorpions. And it doesn't take long, as you might imagine, for the people to hear this speech And for them to not like it very much, they actually stir up a mob. Look at verse 16. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, he wasn't listening to what they were wanting. The people answered the king saying, what portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. They hear this. Really rough reply from this young king. And they immediately act on the long brewing strain of tension between all the tribes. This is the last straw. Again, it seems as if the favoritism and the partisanship that had been showed to Judah over the other tribes was now continuing. And they're, they're fed up with it. Down with David. Why do we even care about the, David, the promise to David, the son of Jesse? Why do we even have any sort of bent or any sort of reason why we should follow that? To your tents, they say. Basically, every man for himself. We don't have any allegiance to the old Davidic standard and all the promises that were kept in that moment. Instead, they rebel. They look out for themselves and notice It says, verse 17, But as for the children of Israel which dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the tribute, and all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. Therefore King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. And so Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. Heartbreaking scene. God's people of promise, the people who had received the covenant, are now being brought into civil war. Outright civil war. Now, there's not even peace talks happening. Adorm, the guy that they had sent to negotiate with these really uh, sort of uh, really upset tribes, uh, yeah, they murdered him. We don't want to talk to you. You're not listening to us, is what they're saying. Both sides think they're right. It's a major moment in Israel's history because from this point forward, we have approximately two generations of conflict between the north and the southern kingdoms. And to think, 
That it was all essentially brought on by a king's foolish speech in which he was just stroking his own ego. I'm the new king. You got to listen to me. You got to follow what I say. And in fact, Alexander McLaren, he notes, and I like how he words it, that a dozen rash words brought about 400 years of strife and weakness and destruction on God's people. One little moment in which this king makes a very terrible decision to not heed the wisdom of the old men and instead to resort to the counsel of his peers leads to generations of lives being broken and lives being lost. And notice verse 20, because the tribes that secede, so the tribes that uh, secede in verse 20, they immediately make Jeroboam their new king. And it came to pass when all Israel, verse 20, heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all uh, Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Rehoboam takes this moment to sort of lick his wounds back in Jerusalem. As the new tribes of Israel are crowning their new monarch and assembling their forces, perhaps writing laws and governmental procedures, Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, it says in verse 21, and he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin and hundred and fourscore thousand chosen men, which were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Again, you notice... This is exactly, I think, what our reaction would be. My throne was taken away. I gotta, I gotta find out, I gotta get my guys, I gotta get my team together. We gotta go, we gotta fight them. Let's get our swords, let's get our shields, and let's go get back what was mine. So he's getting his army together, they're getting their plans together for this massive counteroffensive against the house of Israel because of course the throne must be fought for and then I love verses 22 through 24 because you have the most unexpected character who has who comes in declaring the most unexpected message imaginable because remember the fervor of this moment Judah doesn't want to concede there he went from 12 tribes to two They went from a united kingdom to now a kingdom that is fraught with war and violence and destruction. Who wants to concede to that? So Rehoboam and all of his ilk are likely championing, let's let's fight for Judah. And in walks a prophet, verse 22. The word of God came unto Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearkened therefore to the word of the Lord, and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. A message comes from a man of God in perhaps a a war room where they're drawing up plans. And he comes in and says, no, lay down your swords. No, put your swords back in their sheaths because this thing is from Jehovah. And amazingly, they listen. (laughs) 
I, was, I always picture that scene from the 1938 version of Robin Hood, which is a movie that I've seen probably like 30 million times. <laughs> but that scene at the end of Robin Hood, you know, when they're all throwing their swords down in the middle of that massive room. I, I don't know, for whatever reason, when I read this passage, I think of that scene because they're laying down their arms. And that's essentially what they do here. They're laying down their swords and they're choosing not to fight. Now, I'm so surprised by this turn of events. For uh, And especially by a couple of different characters. I'm surprised by Rehoboam, who finally listens. <laughs> he finally listens to sound wisdom. Where easily the best decision that he makes in this entire story is to heed the words of this prophet. Who says, no, we don't need to fight in this moment. I'm also surprised by Shemaiah. The prophet, again, who comes in bearing perhaps the most unpopular message imaginable. He speaks a word that goes so far against the grain of what was uh, being shouted in that room. Again, popular sentiment said, let's fight. we got to get back what's ours. They, they took something from us. And in walks a humble man of God who preaches the exact opposite of that message. Again, because his errand had nothing to do with the concerns of Israel. His errand was only about declaring God's word. He wasn't there to worry about the house of Judah. He was there to bring concern back to the house of Jehovah. His concern was far deeper and far richer and far, I would say, more significant. He wasn't worried about national interest. He was only interested in God's word. And I would say, I wish that were more true of Christians in our day. That we were more concerned about the things of God's word as opposed to what's going on on the national scene. But I'm also surprised by God in this moment because... In spite of Rehoboam and his very uh, sort of braggadocious uh, saying that I can be my own king and I don't need to heed any other uh, people's counsel or or wisdom. And and he reveals his failure and his folly on such a large stage. God gives him the opportunity to listen. Shemaiah's interruption of their war plans is a moment of grace for the son of Solomon himself. Heed the wisdom of God's word. Heed this moment of interruption. And again, this, just a step back. This whole thing seems like a scene of just unbridled error and folly. And it is. There's a lot of self-absorption, self-concern, self-interest on display. Everyone is thinking with their egos. Everyone is thinking about just what they want to get out of it. Jeroboam, he is all about trying to get power. Rehoboam is all about pride. And the people of Israel who are finally having their moment where they can get back on all the tribes who gave them side eyes are now trying to get payback. And yet, despite all of that... None of this was coincidence. None of it was just happening by chance. None of it was just happening. Because uh, there's a phrase in here that I think turns our outlook on this entire chapter upside down. Notice verse 15 again. 
Rehoboam has just declared his speech, which broke the people of Israel's backs. And notice it says, wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord. Or, as God himself says, even more declaratively in verse 24, notice, thus saith the Lord, you shall not go up, you're not going to fight, you're not going to take up your swords against your brothers. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. Think about that. As a a person who says, I'm a a person of promise, I'm of the people of Israel. How could this thing be from Jehovah, the one who has made the promises? They've been in Sunday school for a long time. They've been hearing about the old Mosaic promises and even, I would say, the Abrahamic promises for their whole life. How could they think that this is from God? God has had this promise to make Israel a land of blessing, a land of fruitfulness, a land of power, and a land of glory and of majesty. And now they're divided. And they're fighting. And they're all separated. They're rebelling against one another. It seems like folly. It seems like foolishness. And it is. (laughs) But such is the stage, I think, sometimes where God loves to demonstrate just how sovereign he is. Yes, on the stage of human stubbornness and pride and foolishness. That's where God's hands of providence are sometimes most clearly seen. Because this random event that leads to the people of Israel separating into two kingdoms that war against each other. As he says, is from me. This thing is from me. I have to imagine that Shemaiah understood however feebly, however dimly, that God's providence would always overcome whatever pandemonium was on the scene, was in the present. Maybe he'd understand how or the ins and the outs of how, uh, how God would do that, but he understood as a man of God, as a prophet of God, that God's word is true and it'll always be true and that this thing is from the Lord and we can bank on his providence over and above our pride. It seemed entirely unlikely that this thing was from God. And imagine that when he walked into that war room and he said that, when he declared that statement, that he received none too few side eyes from all those people that were there. (laughs) Are you kidding me? You serious about that, Shemaiah? But again, he wasn't there to make sense of the present or to try and predict the future. He was there to declare the word of God. I wonder, when I think about this scene, and all that's going on, all of the concerns that are being uh, sort of out-voluming the concern for God's word, how are we misunderstanding our time? How are we misunderstanding this present moment? Look around you. Turn on any news outlet you want to, and you will likely see just bad news. 
People taking up arms and shooting each other in the streets. Democracy seemingly crumbling right before our very eyes. Those in the church are falling into the ditch left and right. It seems that life as we know it is crumbling right in front of us. All that we've clung to, all that we've held dear is falling through our fingers. Could this be from the Lord as well? Could 2021 be from his hand too? I've asked myself over the last 24 months, how am I blind to God's involvement in our time? Because I think and I know that I am. How am I blind to what God is doing? Because right now it just seems really bad. You know, far too often I think, I'm going to, I'll preach to myself. As Christians, I, I, as a Christian, I would say, I feel like I sensationalize our time as if I'm living in the most crucial moment in the history of the world. Have you ever felt like that? That, that, that it's, everything is up to us. And that if we don't bunker down, if we don't circle the wagons, God's kingdom, it's going to be a forgotten memory. That we have, to, we have to do something. We have to fight for something. We have to take up our arms and, and really white knuckle the kingdom into existence. As if the establishment of God's kingdom on earth rides on our shoulders. Guess what? It doesn't. And it never has. Psalm 127, 1 and 2, it, it, well, I'll just read it. I'm going to, I always botch up quotes, and I think I can say them off the top of my head, and then I botch them up. So one, Psalm 127, write this down. It says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman that waketh, but in vain. It is vain to you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. And you know what that is talking about? Your sort of freneticism over bringing in the kingdom of God or thinking that it's not going to happen is totally useless if you don't realize that God is going to bring in his kingdom when he wants to in his timing, in his way. Did you know that God has never had a plan that's been upset? He's still on plan A. (laughs) That's hard to believe. (laughs) That doesn't seem possible. How is 2020 part of God's plan? I don't know. But God's kingdom has never been hindered or delayed by anything that has happened in our present life. It's never been stopped. God's kingdom is unstoppable. Even a division between God's people cannot stop it from coming about. Nothing can stop His kingdom from happening. Because he is sovereign. He is both Lord and Messiah. He's sovereign over his kingdom. And it's timing too. I think we should just admit. That we're very terrible interpreters of the present. (laughs) This, This little passage. It comes from not a Christian. But I think it's so uniquely applicable to what we often like to do as Christians. This writer, he's writing an essay and he says, quote, We're very unreliable interpreters of the present. What we think is happening is, though we may not realize it till years later, not what's really going on at all. We don't know what 
the present is for any more than I know what an essay is going to turn out to be when I start writing it. (laughs) What is this present for? Why did God allow what he has allowed in the last 24 months? What what is the reason for all that? (laughs) I I hope you weren't expecting an answer because I have to say I have no clue. (laughs) I don't know. And anyone, by the way, who pretends to know, they're lying to you. There's one thing I do know, though. There's one thing I am absolutely sure of. The same thing that Shemaiah was sure of, too. That this thing is from Yahweh himself. It's not an accident. It's not just happenstance. There are sovereign hands that are holding our world. And there are sovereign purposes that are coming to bear on our world. Yes, even in the mess of this present moment, there are things that are happening before our eyes that we will never realize until years later. This is what God is doing. And what he is always doing. He performs miracles of grace with all of the waywardness and strife and sin and scandal that's always on display. This is who he is. He's a God whose purposes can never fail. Whose plans are always successful. No amount of human folly can derail him. No amount of rebellion can make his kingdom stop. No amount of sin can overpower his mercy. And guess what? He's not surprised by 2021. He's not surprised by what's occurring. He has not been caught off guard by a single ounce of human depravity that has been on display. I think we are often way more surprised than he is. (laughs) I would say it's in the very wreck of our lives. Where God does his work. That's where he does his best work. In the crater of our failure. In the, in the nothingness of our sin. That's where he offers himself as the resurrection and the life. And yes, even here, in the aftermath of this moment. Did you catch it in verse 20? He's still preserving a remnant. Verse 20. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again. They sent and called unto him the congregation and made him king over Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Actually, that's not my verse, but it's in there somewhere, I promise you. (laughs) I forgot where it was. I wrote down the wrong one. It's okay. He's still preserving his people, the house of David. And in fact, I did write write down the right verse here. You Go with me just quickly to uh, chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Notice it says, nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem? Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. You see, even there... (laughs) Even in the midst of David's failure, what was promised to David was not taken away from him. (laughs) 
God was using even that for good. God was using that, even that, that his sovereign purposes might prevail. And you see the same word is being spoken to people generations after David's demise, that the same thing is true, that the light in Jerusalem had not departed from God's people. Yes, even after they had rebelled and warred against each other. Which just leads me to say that However camouflaged it might be in our time, this time is from the Lord. The one who works all things for good according to his purposes, as it says in Romans. And again, I, don't, I hope I don't come across glib or, or, or surfacy, because I know how hard that is to believe. In the moments of wreckage, You don't want to hear someone often preaching to you that this thing is from God. That's a hard thing to come to grips with. When when a couple years ago when my mom was going through her thing and someone came up to me and said that this thing is from God, I probably would have punched them in the face. (laughs) I didn't want to hear that. I didn't believe that. I couldn't believe that in that moment. It seemed like everything that I had clung to was was falling out of my fingers. It doesn't always feel true in the moment that this thing is from the Lord. But my friends, it is. And this is what faith does. It clings to what is true even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it feels untrue. You cling to what is certain, the word of God itself. Even though it's not what we want to hear, hindsight always proves it to be true that God is great in faithfulness. Always. There's never a time when that's not true. And so I would say that Shemaiah's sermon... To the people of Israel who were looking to fight back and fight for what's theirs and reclaim what they thought they deserved is the language of faith. That this thing is from the Lord of all things. Who continually turns the garbage of our lives into his glory. Who turns, as it says in the prophet Isaiah's book, he turns those wastelands into gardens. And our brokenness he remakes and he turns our death into life. And that's what he is doing here. Because even in the fractured sort of wreckage of this moment, God's light hasn't gone out. And even for you and I here in this present moment, whatever suffering you are enduring, it is not accidental. It is not happenstantial. It is from the Lord that his sovereignty might prevail over our ability. That his grace might be seen in our weakness. Do you believe that? There's nothing that I think I've come to grips with more than in the last several years. Than my sheer inability to control anything. 
And I'm not a master of that. I like to control my little life. (laughs) And that's when God wheedles his way in (laughs) and reminds me, you don't control anything. And that's the most free position we could ever be in. Because when you realize you don't control anything, not even your little life, you're way more apt and free to just bank on the hands that held the world in its hands. In the palms of his hands, he has everything in order. It wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to read it anyways. Isaiah chapter 40. You want to hear some comforting verses? Isaiah 40.10 Behold, the Lord God will come with his strong hand and arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heavens with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? And he goes on from there. And the point is (laughs) that the God who controls all things, who has everything in the palms of his hands, gently leads his children along. The ruler of all things is the gentle and lowly shepherd that comes to your side. If there's any better news in the gospel than that, I don't know. The one who can speak and worlds are formed comes to your aid. And reminds you, this thing is from me. My plans prevail, period. That was true for Israel, and it's true right now. And even in a hundred years, when we're all not here, if the Lord hasn't come before then, it'll still be just as true then. My friends, don't cling to the darkness that you see in the news that you see in front of your faces. Cling to the certain words of God, because they are always true. And they are always good. And they are always for you. Let us pray.